Do you guys know um, why uh, skeletons do not play in the worship band, in the church worship band? Because they have no organs. It's Halloween, you guys. I've been saving that one for a few weeks. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm more of a Christmas guy, uh, so I'm, I'm kind of waiting. Uh, I'll probably set my tree up in about uh, a week and a half. Anybody with me? We, it's time. It's time. Hey, it's been a hard couple of years. We're going to start Christmas early, but I'm more of a Christmas guy. But Halloween is still fun, and I'll tell you why Halloween is fun. Because walking around the neighborhood, we see so, I see so many kids in their costumes, and one of the things that's so cool about kids in costumes, and I remember this when I was a kid, is that the shyest little kid in the world, they can put on the Ninja Turtle costume and the shyness goes away and they become Raphael, Donatello, Michelangelo, or Leonardo. You know what I mean? Like my little girls were my little pony. Like they're uh, Fluttershy and Rainbow Dash. That's who they are today, and they are fluttershying and rainbow-dashing all through our house. There's something about, I mean, you see the Jedis around the street, like kids put the costume on, and they become the Jedi, not just in, in appearance, but, I mean, their whole demeanor changes. That's what's so amazing about kids and costumes and Halloween. And there's something about when we put on something, it changes us. When we put on a costume, it changes us. Well, the Apostle Paul throughout his New Testament letters, he uses, actually, he uses a metaphor of clothing, uh, the metaphor of new clothes as a way of describing what happens to us when we come to Christ and when we become followers of Jesus. Paul essentially says that what happens when we come to Jesus is that we bring the dirty, stained clothes of our past, our shame, our guilt, our mistakes. Paul calls this the old self. We bring this to Jesus, we lay this at the foot of the cross of Jesus, and Jesus offers us brand new clothes in return, clothes of freedom, clothes of forgiveness, clothes of righteousness, clothes of new life. And the Apostle Paul says over and over again, both here in Ephesians and in the book of Colossians, he says that one of the things we are called to do, the process of what it means to be a Christian, is that every day we are to take off the old self. That's not who we are anymore. We take off the old self and we put on the character of Jesus. He says this is what, you know, following Jesus is. It's, it's continually dying to yourself, taking off the old self, and putting on the new self, the new self of Jesus. This is the life of the Christian. At every moment in our lives, we are choosing to put away our old selves and we're choosing to put on our new self in Jesus. And if we are in Christ... We are clothing ourselves with the character of Jesus. And Paul uses this metaphor in our text today. We're in Ephesians chapter 4. Listen to what he says. He says, Now I say, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now he's writing to a church full of Gentiles. He's saying, Do not live as you used to live. The Gentiles live in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the way you learned Christ, he says to them. 
assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, you were told to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And you are now called to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, Paul reminds his readers in the uh, church in Ephesus, these Christians living in Ephesus, he says, you were once this. This is how you once lived. You were alienated from God. You didn't understand the things of God. You didn't care about the things of God. You, you were free in your mind to just do whatever pleased you. But that's not who you are anymore. You have come into an encounter with the risen, resurrected Christ, and now you no longer have to live that life. Put away the old self and walk in the new self. You don't have to live that way anymore, he says. He says to them, you're free. You don't have to be that person anymore. So put off the old self, be renewed into the image of Jesus. And Paul, he essentially reminds them what they were like when they were far from God. And he reminds them now how they've been transformed by Jesus into a new life. Now, one of the things I often do when I go through um, and I know you guys have these times as well, but I have seasons where it's just, you know, my faith feels dry. Anybody have those? Where you're like, man, it just feels like, I, I, you know, I, I need something to kickstart my, my, my zeal for the Lord. And one of the things I've always found has super helpful for me is reading conversion stories of some of the great Christians in the past. And the, two of my favorites are St. Augustine and John Newton. St. Augustine's is like this. And, and, and when we see conversion stories, it kind of reminds us not only of their stories, but it reminds us our story. We once were this, but now we're this. And so St. Augustine, he was the fourth century North African philosopher. You may have read City of God in your you know, intro to philosophy class in college. But before his conversion to Christianity, Augustine was known to be quite promiscuous. He was a bit of a ladies' man. And one day, uh, years after his conversion, he was walking around the streets and uh, he saw one of his former mistresses, his former lovers, and she saw him and made eye contact with him. And he was like, oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no. And Augustine turned the other way, you know, like most, you know, he's like, I'm just fleeing the temptation, man. He turned away and he ran the other way and he put his head down and he was like, I'm, and she shouted. She wasn't going to let him go. She shouted across the street. She said, Augustine, it is I. And Augustine turned around and he said, yes, but it's not I. You see, Augustine had put away the old self. He said, you knew a different me. I've told you guys before that I struggled to go to my high school reunions because they always like, what do you do now? I'm like, I'm a pastor. And they're like, really? You? And I'm like, yeah, because there, is, there are people who know the old self. And then there's a new self. And this is what Augustine experienced. But then the story of John Newton is just phenomenal. If you've ever seen the movie Amazing Grace, it follows the story of his life. John Newton was a slave trader. I mean, he it was the worst of the worst. Uh, he was an English slave trader. But then later in his life, after committing all sorts of horrific evils in his life, he converted to Christianity. And when he converted to Christianity, he began, the Holy Spirit began to renew his mind to see the world the way God sees it. And John Newton saw his life, his job, 
with the eyes of God, and he said this is evil, and he left his life of slave trading behind and became an abolitionist. And actually, along with Wilbur, Wil, Wil, William Wilberforce, led to the abolition of the slave trade in England. But we also know John Newton by the song that he wrote. He wrote a song called Amazing Grace. You might have heard of it. But John Newton, that was a biographical song. He says, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. John Newton, an old self into a new self. That is what Jesus can do. He can transform your old way into a new way. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you were once one thing. You could fill in the blanks with all sorts of things. Many of you could. There are a lot of stories in this room. I was once this. But by the grace of Jesus, that is not who you are anymore if you are in Christ. Because in Christ, he has now made you something else. You may not feel like you are, but the truth is that is who you are. You once were this, but now you are this. You once were lost, but now you're found. You once were blind, but now you can see. We have been saved. We have been made new. But we also must make a choice each day. Will we walk in our salvation? Okay, you've been saved, yes. You've been saved how? Not by anything you've done, by grace through faith. But now that you've been saved, what have you been saved for? Do you just sit there and go, oh, God saved me. I'll just relax now. No, you've been saved so that you can now work out your salvation for the sake of the world and for the sake of others. See, Paul tells these, these Christians, he says, you have been saved, but now you must consciously choose to live your life in the way of Jesus. Jesus has called you to himself so that you can walk in his spirit rather than the way of your former life. And so Paul says in verse 25, he says, with this in mind, therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You see, Paul has spent three chapters in the book of Ephesians telling us how God has saved us. But now he's going to spend the next three chapters saying, okay, now that you've been saved, this is how you live as a follower of Jesus. And he says all these things, he says, he says, take this off and put this on. Take off the old way of life and put the new way of life on. And even though this passage was written 2,000 years ago to a group of people on the other side of the world that spoke different languages, wore different clothes, and looked different from us, this passage still speaks so directly to the journey of the Christian life for us today in Brooklyn in 2021, doesn't it? Because every single day, every single one of us wake up and we have a choice to make. We can choose to put on the clothes of the old life. We can go back to our former ways. We can be tempted in moments to put on the old stuff. 
but by the Spirit of God and by the grace of God, we can have the courage to choose to walk in our new life. And that means to put on the new clothes of Jesus, the character of Jesus, for the sake of others. You see, as followers of Jesus, as the church of Jesus in the world and in this community, we are not called to just receive God's salvation and let it terminate on ourselves. But we are called, once we've been saved, we are now part of another family. We're part of a new family, a new kingdom, which means we have a completely different value system than the value system of the world. And so we take the things of the world off day by day and put on the things of Jesus. And so what do we take off? The old self. That's right, Francis. And here's what that looks like. The first thing is that we take off falsehood and we put on truth. Jesus said, or Paul says in verse 25, therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Listen to me. The truth matters. Truth matters, not just when it's convenient for you, but the truth always matters. Not when it benefits your team or your tribe. The truth always matters because Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. That, so that, what that means is that to put on the new self of Jesus means that we must be truthful people. Christians must be truth tellers, and we must be truth seekers. Years ago, I made the acquaintance of a golfer by the name of Blaine Barber. Uh, his little brother was actually a member of the church I was pastoring at the time. And so I got to know Blaine, but in 2012, some of you may have heard this story. It's about 10 years ago. But Blaine Barber was one step away from qualifying for the PGA Tour, which in golf terms is that's the highest level it gets in professional golf. And he was playing a qualifying tournament that if he, went, he won the tournament, he would then go on to become a part of the PGA Tour. And he actually won the qualifying tournament. And so now he's on his way to the big leagues. I mean, this represents a lot. I mean, this is the culmination of a life, lifelong dream for him. And it also represents hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so he was invited to the PGA Tour. Big deal. But nine days later, Blaine called the PGA office and rescinded his invitation. He said, I can't take it. And they said, why? And the reason he declined his invitation to the PGA Tour is because during the qualifying tournament on one hole, he accidentally brushed a leaf in front of his ball with a practice swing. No one saw it. It didn't affect his shot in any way. And it, I mean, it, it didn't affect the, the play at all. But that's a penalty. No one saw it. His caddy didn't record it. And he said, I didn't report it because it, the, it barely moved and it didn't affect the difficulty of the shot. So I didn't think it was a big deal. But Blaine is a follower of Jesus. And for nine days, he prayed and he heard the Holy Spirit telling him, Blaine, put away all falsehood. Tell the truth, because this is who Jesus is, and this is who Jesus wants you to become. And so he called the PGA, reported his penalty, and disqualified himself. A 23-year-old with a lifelong dream and hundreds of thousands of dollars on the line, in the name of Jesus, took off falsehood and put on the truth. This is the will of God. God was more pleased with Blaine in that moment than the day when Blaine eventually made it onto the PGA Tour. And this applies to your life as well. You think, well, what a great story, 23-year-old. Well, if a 23-year-old can do that with the PGA Tour on the line, you can be truthful when it comes to your taxes. 
You can be truthful when it comes to the social media articles and posts that you share. Listen to me, church. There is a lot of misinformation going around on social media right now, on Facebook, on Instagram. People see the, I mean, you see, it's so tempting, isn't it? The post, the politician that you hate. There's some post that paints them in the worst possible light and you go, oh, that'll show them if I share this. And you don't fact check. You don't look and see if it's true. You know, you know, Senator Joe Schmo wants to take away puppies from your children. You're like, oh, that'll show them and you share it. Listen, church, the world can do that. You don't do that. We tell the truth. We tell the truth. This also applies to the things that you hide from your spouse. This applies to taking credit for someone else's job at work. Tell the truth. Christians are called to be truth tellers. Christians are called also to be truth seekers. And we're also called to be truth believers. Here's what I mean by that. The New Testament calls Satan the author of lies or the deceiver. You see, every day, this is, this is uh, we tell the truth, but you also, you, we've got to believe the truth. And some of you, the reason your faith is so um, shaky right now, and the reason why you walk in such low self-confidence in who you are in Christ is because you are listening to lies and you're not believing the truth about who you are. The enemy, Satan in the scriptures, is called the accuser of the Christians. He's called the deceiver. And every day when you wake up, he is speaking into your soul. And he is saying, you are not worthy. You are not enough. You are not acceptable. You are a failure. God can never forgive you. You will never measure up. You will never be attractive enough. You'll never be acceptable enough. You'll never be enough. That is the voice of Satan. Because the voice of God is that you are my beloved in whom I am well pleased. I have chosen you before the foundation of the world. I've called you to myself. I've redeemed you. I've called you by name because you are mine and I love you. Every day, you have the choice to believe the truth of who God says you are and what he says he feels about you, or you can believe the truth of what the enemy is telling you. We must be not just truth tellers, but truth believers. We must believe the truth. The second thing we take off, we take off falsehood and put on truth, but we also take off anger and bitterness, and we put on peace and forgiveness. Verse 26 says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Verse 31, it says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another. Be tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Isn't it so easy to, it's so easy to hold on to anger and bitterness, isn't it? Why is it so easy to hold on to those things? Why is it so hard to let them go? Sometimes it's hard to let things go. It's, it's easy to hold on to bitterness because someone has actually done something very wrong against you. And that hurts. Anybody been there? Like somebody sinned against you greatly. And you can read all the Bible verses about forgiveness, but it just hurts so much to even consider it, doesn't it? Because it hurts because you feel in your heart to forgive someone or to release the bitterness like you're letting them off the hook. It feels like if it hurts to forgive, then, then, then you're letting them off the hook and you're, it, it hurts to let, 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 them, let it go. It's painful and that's a dilemma. 
It hurts to keep no record of wrongs. Sometimes the reason we hold on to anger and bitterness and we're slanderous toward one another is because, let's be honest, focusing on the wrongs of others, it's a helpful distraction from coming to grips with what's wrong in our own souls, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, our anger with others sometimes can just be anger with ourselves, isn't it? Where we're, we just love to point out everything everybody else does wrong, and we love to hold everything that everybody else does against them. But if we really dug deep enough, it's because there's something within us that is angry with ourselves, and we can't forgive ourselves, so it's hard for us to forgive others. Other times we hold on to anger and bitterness just because we're prideful and we like to win. And to release anger and bitterness would feel like we'd be losing the match. We'd be losing the debate. And we'd let the other person win. And this is pride. And it poisons our ability to let the sun go down on our anger. And it's at, this is at the root of many strained marriages. It's at the root of most of the outrage in our world today. Pride. Our inability to let things go because we're too afraid that if we let things go, the other side might feel like they won or they got the best of us. And that's pride. But the scriptures say that our God, Psalm 145, it says the Lord is gracious and slow to anger. This is who he is. And this is demonstrated most clearly in Jesus, who from the cross, think about this for a moment. When you're thinking, when you're holding on to unforgiveness, Jesus on the cross looks down on the very people who are executing him. He looks down on the very people who called for his crucifixion, the people who are gambling for his clothes. And what does he say? He says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus had compassion on his killers. He had compassion on his mockers, his insulters, because he knew that they were ignorant of what they were doing, and he was gracious with them. Jesus didn't harbor bitterness, even in the most painful moments. Because Jesus knew that he had the last word. His death was temporary. He knew that resurrection, he was going to get the last word anyway. So he forgave them even as they were crucifying him. And listen, all the things that make us angry in our lives, before we decide to hold on to them with clenched fists, we must consider what it is that's making us clench our fists so tightly. Have we been hurt? So was Jesus. He was betrayed by one of his closest friends with a kiss. Yet he trusted in the justice of his father and he chose to forgive. Are you frustrated with yourself? Is your anger and bitterness toward others really just a mask for your anger and bitterness toward yourself? Or maybe perhaps you're just too full of pride or too immature to forgive someone because you just don't want to lose the battle. In both of those cases, we consider Jesus who at our very worst... He forgives and is gracious and slow to anger with, with, with us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's a story about a traveler making his way through the jungles with a guide. And they came to a river and they were wading through to the other side. And when the traveler came out of the river, he looked down at his legs and noticed that just hundreds of leeches had attached to his legs and his torso. And his first instinct, he, he reached down and he started grabbing him off. And the guide said, no, 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 no. Don't do that. The guide stopped him and he said, if you start pulling those leeches out, if you start ripping them out, you're going to leave tiny pieces of those leeches under your skin and eventually infection would set in and you'll lose your leg. He said, the best way to rid the body of those leeches, the guide advised, was to bathe in a warm bath for several minutes. 
He said this would soak the leeches and soon they will release the hold on your body and they'll let go and you can go free. Listen, anger and bitterness is like a leech. When someone hurts you, when someone wounds you and someone makes you angry or bitter, it is easy, the natural impulse is to rip at them with all your might and to make them feel the pain that you felt. But that will not solve anything. You may put them in their place, but an infection within you will begin growing. Bitterness. And, G- and, and Paul says that's not the way of Jesus. The only way to become truly free of anger and bitterness and to, to become truly free of the offense and to learn to forgive others is to soak in the forgiveness of Jesus. You see, when you finally can fathom the extent of God's love in Jesus, forgiveness of others can then be a natural overflow. Jesus says in John 15, abide in me, rest in me, soak in me, and you will bear much fruit. And that fruit, in many cases, is forgiveness. He has forgiven you of much. You can forgive someone of little. This is what we're choosing to put on. Our natural tendency is to put on anger and bitterness and revenge. But the Jesus follower, day by day, chooses to put on forgiveness and peace. Thirdly, we take off selfishness and we put on generosity. Verse 28 says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Paul says that we should not be people who take, 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 or steal, but rather we should work hard, we should labor, honest work, so that we will have something to share with others. Paul says the reason we work and the reason we labor and the reason we earn an income is so that we can bless others. That's not the American way, but that's the, that's the way of Jesus. We earn, yes, to provide for ourselves and for our family, yes, but we do not earn so that we can store up an abundance for ourselves. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy, but rather store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's this biblical principle that says you can tell what someone loves by what they give their money to. If you want to know what somebody loves, what do they give their money to? But the flip side of that biblical principle of where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. You can actually give your way into affection for something. If you give your money, if, you're, if your generosity goes toward the poor, your heart will follow. This is a principle of the kingdom of God. And in fact, some of you, many of us, we're afraid to be generous, especially with our money, Because we're afraid that if we give to someone else, they'll either take advantage of it or we're afraid we'll lose out, we'll miss out, and we won't get to experience all the things we want. But listen, Proverbs 11.25 actually says that that is foolishness. Proverbs 11.25 says that a generous person will actually be most enriched. And the one who gives a drink of water is the one who will receive water. You see, we're so afraid to be generous because we're afraid of what we will lose. But the truth is, the follower of Jesus, when we are generous we actually gain so much more. We are enriched. That's the way of Jesus. We take off selfishness. We put on generosity. But we also, finally, we take off corrupt talk and we put on encouragement. We put on building others up. Verse 29 says, Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Like, your words ought to give grace to those who hear them. That's convicting for me. My words don't always give grace to other people. 
But that's not the way of Jesus. And I'm called to put on the new self, which is building others up. We need to be encouragers. This is what God is. What is the will of God for my life? For you to encourage other people. We lift people up. We, bring, we don't bring people down. You see, Ephesians, this is a letter not written to individuals, but it's written to a church. Paul is trying to say, we want a church with a culture of encouragement. Because when there's one person who encourages and someone is lifted up, then that person can encourage and lift someone up. When we're all encouragers, the whole place rises. When I was in college, I was in a Bible study with a group of guys. I was a new Christian and I was in a group of guys as, you know, a bunch of cool guys that I thought were, you know, I thought they were cool. And there was this one guy named Josh Betts. He was real popular, had a pretty girlfriend, you know, like he was, he was the guy, you know, never would have crossed my mind to encourage him. I thought, man, like, what do I have to encourage this guy? This guy's got it all. Like this guy's so cool. And it, I never thought to encourage him because he seemed like he was so confident. And, and so I withheld encouragement, even though I thought he was awesome. I never told him, you know, like, hey, man, that's, I think you're great. But one night we were in our Bible study. And I mean, remember, these are, we're like, this is 20-year-old guys. So the maturity that it took for this guy was incredible. But he said, hey, guys, just when it was his turn to talk, he said, hey, guys, I, I just want to tell you. He said, um, there were like eight or nine of us in the group. He said, guys, man, I just am really feeling down right now. He says, I don't feel like Christ is working something great in my life. Like I feel, I don't feel like, I, I just don't feel like God's doing anything in my life. And he said, I need you guys to speak encouragement into me. And he said, I don't want you to tell me what I'm good at. Don't tell me that, you know, I'm good at, on the intramural flag football team. Don't tell me that I throw a good spiral. Don't tell me that I have a pretty girlfriend. Don't tell me trivial things. He said, I need you to tell me who, where you see Christ in me. And it was amazing. I mean, you think, men don't do this. Like young, hormonal, egotistical boys, college boys, don't do this sort of thing. But in this room of eight or nine guys, we all just said, Josh, dude, we see so much gentleness in you. Like the way you treat your girlfriend, the way you treat people who are younger than you or who uh, aren't as cool as you, or maybe people who are on the margins. Like you just have a heart for people that other people don't seem to love. Josh, man, we see the love of Jesus in you. And he like tears in his eyes. He was like, thank you guys for encouraging me, telling me who I am in Christ. And then the next guy next to him was like, uh, hey man, I could use some encouragement too. And we spent two or three hours that night, just everybody got a time where everybody got encouraged. I'm telling you, that's not normal for a group of guys to encourage each other like that. But here's what happened. That Bible study, we stayed together for the next two or three years in college. And that night set in motion a culture of encouragement within us. And we became a group of friends that we wouldn't say like, we wouldn't compliment each other on trivial things. But when we saw God working in somebody, we would call it out of them and encourage them and build them up. And I cannot explain to you how life-giving being a part of a group like that it was. And that's what I want for our church. I want our church to be a place where we encourage one another, where we build people up. I want, I want, if you're a part of this church, I want you to walk away from your group every week. I want you to walk away from our Sunday services going, they are people who encourage me. And you say, well, I want that too. Here's how you get it. You start encouraging others. We, when we, encouragement begets encouragement. Let's create a culture of encouragement within our church.
the passage Paul says in verse 30, he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by God, of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Some of you saw that and you're like, oh, what does that mean? How do you grieve the Holy Spirit? You grieve the Holy Spirit when you choose to wear the old clothes of falsehood, anger, bitterness, selfishness, and corrupt talk. And you know how you give joy to the Holy Spirit? When you refuse to put on the old clothes and you put the new ones on and you walk in truth, peace, forgiveness, generosity, and encouragement. C.S. Lewis reflected on this passage. He says, we are commanded to dress up as Christ. And he said, he struggled with that. He said, this is, I don't, I don't struggle with the pretense of it all. He said, how can I dress up as kind, patient, meek, or humble on the days that I don't feel kind, patient, meek, or humble? Anybody, you're like, you hear this passage, you're like, I want to be generous. I want to be selfless. I want to be kind, all this stuff. But boy, I don't feel that way. And wouldn't it be faking it if I were to do it and I didn't really mean it? Isn't that hypocrisy? Isn't that pretending? C.S. Lewis says, well, there's a good kind of pretending where the pretense actually leads to the real thing. When you're not feeling particularly friendly, but you know you ought to be, the best thing you can do very often is to put on a friendly manner and behave as if you were a nicer person than you actually are. And in a few minutes, as we all have noticed, you will be feeling friendlier than you were. And very often, the only way to get a, get a quality in reality is to start behaving as if you had it already. And here's the truth. Generosity, patience, kindness, truthfulness, you already have it. Because the scriptures say that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for you so that you might become the righteousness of God. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are clothed in Christ. That is who you are. And so you start walking in that way and you will become who God has already declared you to be. Had anybody, we got any Marvel fans in here? I, I'm, a, I, I, I'm a big Marvel guy. And you know, at the end of, of Endgame, when, uh, when Steve Rogers, Captain America, comes back from time traveling and he hands his shield to the Falcon. And, you know, Steve Rogers is a super soldier. He's got, like, serum running through his veins. Like, I mean, he's like, he can't die. And Falcon's just a guy with wings, you know? <laughs> and Steve Rogers, he says, I'm retiring as Captain America. And he gives Falcon the shield. And, Falcon, and he says to Falcon, he says, how's it feel as he's holding it? He goes, it feels like it doesn't fit. And Captain America tells Falcon, he says, well, it does. And if you've seen the show Captain America and Winter Soldier, the beauty of that show is it's like the clunkiness of Falcon learning what it means to be Captain America. And he has days where he, he, he chooses not to put on the shield because he doesn't feel worthy. And then, and then at the end, when he finally works into it and puts the Captain America uniform on, you see him living out his true identity, the identity that Captain America had bestowed on him. It fits now. Listen, if you are a follower of Jesus, his life has been declared over, you, over yours. You, your life is hidden in Christ. Which I don't feel patient. Jesus is, therefore you are. So put on the clothes of Jesus. Walk in holiness. And the Holy Spirit promises that you will be conformed into the image of Jesus. This is what we want. This is what we really want. And this is my prayer for you, that we would become this in the name of Jesus for the sake of others.